Open your Bibles, please, to Ruth chapter 4. The book of Ruth chapter 4. Today we come to the end of our study of the book of Ruth, which tells the story of how a woman from Moab came to be a part of the people of Israel and an ancestor of King David, and thus ultimately of Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. To review quickly what we saw last week in chapter 3, we saw that the story takes sort of a surprising turn. This part of the story is, I think, filled with mystery and intrigue. It is not as clear, at least to me, as the first two chapters are. One of the things I have pointed out is that instead of using the names throughout, we find he and she, or the man and the woman, as though the storyteller is being somewhat mysterious in how they tell the story. Excuse me. I'm not into alliteration, but as I was doing this to prepare for the review, I came up with three P's, and it was accidental, it wasn't intentional. The first is Naomi's plan, then Ruth's proposal, and then Boaz's promise. So, there you go. In chapter 2, we see that Ruth takes initiative. In chapter 3, it is Naomi who takes initiative. She says, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? So we saw with Tamar, it's her father-in-law, uh, Judah, who makes the arrangements. Here it is the mother-in-law, uh, Naomi, who seeks to make arrangements for Ruth. And so she comes up with this quite elaborate plan. She says, tonight Boaz is going to be at the threshing floor and this is what you need to do. You need to prepare yourself, wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. In short, she is to dress up like a bride. And yet for all the actions that Naomi speaks of, there is to be discretion. Some people might call it discretion. Others might call it sneaking around because don't let him know that you're there until he's, you know, had enough to drink and enough to eat and he's ready to go to sleep. Um, but I think one of the things that comes through at this point in the story is that for all three characters in this story, they have a strong sense that it is the Lord who is in control, that all their plans, all their schemes will come to nothing if this is not what the Lord wants. And so she says, do this and Boaz will tell you what to do. So Ruth does as Naomi tells her. So you have Naomi's plan. Then you have Ruth's proposal. She does what Naomi says. And as he falls asleep, he's fallen asleep. She puts herself at his feet. And then when he wakes up in the middle of the night, because there's somebody at his feet, she says, put the corner of your robe over me, which was, in fact, a way of saying, I want you to marry me. I want to be your wife. I want to be under your protection. Boaz proclaims that she is praiseworthy and blessed by God because she has passed up other attractive options. She has not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. She didn't look for somebody younger. She didn't look for somebody who had money. That is, they were rich. She didn't look for someone who had no money, that is, that she would marry for love. She did not act from passion or greed, but rather from sacrificial love. 
And then we have Boaz's promise, where in fact he says he will do all that she asks. He knows that she is, and in fact the whole town knows that she is a woman of noble character. He gives her a token. He gives her six measures of barley to take home. Don't go back home to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And when she gets there, she tells Naomi what happened, and now all they have to do is wait. Now, just one more thing, and then we'll get into chapter 4. This whole story is told behind, against the background of two laws in Mosaic law. The first is of the Leverate marriage, and the second is of the kinsman redeemer, which we've looked at previously. Now the chapter opens, chapter 4, and there's several things that need to be settled. First of all, the town gate. Look at verse number 1. Meanwhile, because Ruth has gone home, he has gone, went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here. And they did so. The town gate. This is something we find throughout the Old Testament. It is not exactly like the town square, I think, in sort of American culture. Certainly not in Los Angeles culture. We don't really have a town square here. But it was, in fact, the gate of a town or a city. And that's where certain things took place. First of all, it is where places were debated and settled. But secondly, it is a place for the administration of justice. There's a famous passage in Deuteronomy 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a profligate and a drunkard. Then all the men of the town shall stone him to death. It's a place of justice. But it's also a place of safety. It might sound like a place where if you're not doing what you should, you'll get in trouble. But in Joshua chapter 20, uh, Joshua is given instructions about the cities of refuge. If somebody accidentally kills someone, that is what we would call homicide, it's not homicide, but manslaughter, well, the, the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, can kill him with impunity. So what he must do is run to a city of refuge. And we read, when he flees to one of these cities, he, shall, he is to stand at the entrance of the city gate and state his case before the elders of that city. Then they are to admit him into their city and give him a place to live with them. If the avenger of blood pursues him, they must not surrender the one accused because he killed his neighbor unintentionally and without malice aforethought. So he must make his case at the city gate. And if they believe him, then he is allowed to come in and stay in the city of refuge. The town gate is also a place where business was transacted. When Sarah died, and this is centuries before, Abraham goes to the Hittites and wants to bury, uh, wants to bury her in a cave, the cave of Machpelah, but he, that's owned by Hittite. And so Ephon the Hittite was sitting among his people and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites, who had come to the gate of his city. That's where business was transacted. So it was like a courtroom. It was a marketplace. Uh, it was a place where you brought your complaints, but it's also a place of safety. One more thing that it was, it is a place of the leverate marriage. You may remember that we talked about this. If a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, 
she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to carry out carry on his brother's name in Israel, he will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of the town shall summon him and talk to him if he persists and saying, I do not want to marry her. And then you have the famous spit in his face and take one of his sandals. So Boaz knows if he is going to marry Ruth, he needs to go to the town gate to settle certain things. The first thing he needs to do is to talk to the kinsman who is closer because he wants to marry Ruth to raise up children after Malon, her dead husband. But there's somebody who's more closely related. So he sits there and as the man comes by, he says, hey, friend, come, I want to talk to you. And then he gets ten elders, a quorum. You have to have ten elders of the town to hear the case. And then he presents his case. If you look at verse number three, then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. Now, I don't know about you, but this is startling. This is the first time that we have heard anything about Naomi and land. I thought this was about Ruth. I thought this was about Boaz marrying Ruth. I mean, if in fact she had land, why is she so hard up? I mean, why, why is Naomi in dire straits financially? By the way, when we looked at the kinsman redeemer, we saw that in fact one of his responsibilities was to redeem land. There are three other duties. He is to, to redeem someone who's sold into slavery. He is to avenge someone who's been killed. And he is to act as a trustee. Nothing is said about marrying anybody. The kinsman redeemer does not have to marry anybody. And so in chapter 3, as the story goes along, Ruth proposes, Boaz promises, I will do everything you've asked for. So, at least in my thinking, okay, we're going to have a wedding. Two people are going to get married. And you come to chapter 4, and Boaz starts talking about land which really does not seem to make a lot of sense. The reader, I think, is, if they're thinking, must, they must have a number of questions to which we can only guess at the answers. And I, again, for all the clarity we have in chapters 1 and 2, we certainly lose it in chapter 3, but in chapter 4, I mean, any hint of clarity, I think, goes out the window. I mean, what does marrying Ruth have to do with property? And where did Naomi get this property? We're only told that it belonged to Elimelech. If she owned the land, why have we not heard of this before? Why did Ruth have to go out and work so hard for seven weeks gleaning during harvest, excuse me, during harvest time? Was there not any livelihood available from this land? And again, what does this have to do with Boaz marrying Ruth? With regard to the land, there are several possibilities. The first is that Naomi is acting as a guardian over the rights of the land that belonged to Elimelech and to his sons. And in fact, if verse number 9, if you look at verse number 9, uh, here in chapter 4, it hints at this. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. A second possibility is Naomi is selling the land due to extreme poverty. 
land for which she is looking for a kinsman redeemer to buy it so that it will stay in the family. It is possible that the land had been confiscated during her absence when they were in Moab. We have a case like this in 2 Kings chapter 8, uh, in which uh, a widow that uh, Elijah the, or Elisha the prophet had dealt with, and it says at the end of the passage, Then the king assigned an official to her case and said to him, Give back everything that belonged to her, including all the income from her land, from the day she left the country until now. So there are a number of possibilities with regard to the land. But again, the question begs the question, what does this have to do with Boaz marrying Ruth? Let me suggest a connection. In Numbers chapter 27, we are told about the rights of inheritance. Let me read it to you. This is Numbers 27, verses 8 to 11. Say to the Israelites, if a man dies and leaves no son, turn his inheritance over to his daughter. If he has no daughter, give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, give his inheritance to his, bro- his father's brothers. If his father has no brothers, give his inheritance to the nearest relative in his clan that he may possess it. This is to be a legal requirement for all the Israelites, or for the Israelites, as the Lord commanded Moses. Did you notice something there? In all the list of who gets to inherit, who is not mentioned? The widow. The widow is not mentioned as someone who can inherit property. It would appear under Mosaic law that when a woman's husband died, she did not inherit his property. Why? I mean, this seems uncruel. I mean, cruel. This seems unfair. What's going on? Well, it's beyond what we're going to study. But let me just remind you that if a widow has sons and daughters, they inherit the land and they're going to take care of her. So she doesn't need to inherit the land. If she doesn't have any sons or daughters, she is to be married by an in-law and have a child who then will inherit the land. So then, again, she will be sustained by the land. So a widow doesn't have to inherit property. Her children do. And if she has children, they will inherit. If she doesn't, then her in-law an in-law must marry her so that she, in fact, will have children. So, Boaz tells him that she has come back and she is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. How she came to own the land, we simply do not know. I think is, the point is that the land needs to be redeemed. And Boaz brings this to the attention of the kinsman redeemer who is closer in relation to Elimelech than he is. Look at verse number four. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here. You have the ten elders, the quorum. And in the presence of the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you and I am next in line. So if this man wants to buy it, that's right. That is his right to do so. That is fair. But if he doesn't want to, um, Boaz, in fact, will do this. Just a side note. In verse number three, we find the word sell. In verse number four, we find the word redeem. I would remind you that in Israel, land could not be sold permanently. In the year of Jubilee, all land reverted back to the original family. So we might call it selling 
but it's closer to leasing than actually selling because the land always reverts back to the original owner. I think it may be, in fact, that Elimelech had sold this land, if you wish, before they moved to Moab. And the question is, who is now going to buy it back? Who is going to redeem it? And the kinsman redeemer who is closer responds, I will redeem it. Now, if he's thinking, if the issue of the Leverate marriage crossed his mind, it was clear that Naomi was past childbearing years. He doesn't have to marry her. They're not going to have any kids. So he can redeem this land and doesn't have to worry about Naomi. Doesn't have to marry her. Doesn't. I mean, the money goes to her. He doesn't have to take care of her. And again, if this is the first time you've read the book of Ruth, you're thinking Boaz, you know, Ruth proposed Boaz, said he's going to marry her. He's, he promised he would do all that he could. But there's somebody in the way, and this person in the way says, I will redeem the property. And your heart sinks because this, this is the end. This, Boaz and Ruth can't get married okay, because of the issue of the land. But listen to verse number five. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. It is not Naomi that this Goel, this kinsman redeemer, has to marry. It is Ruth. And it's interesting that Boaz doesn't simply say Ruth. He says Ruth the Moabitess. She's a foreigner. She's not from here. Now, obviously, she has a good reputation. Boaz had said as much. But she's not Jewish. She's not from the people of Israel. So why does he have to marry her? I just want the land. I just want to redeem the land. Why do I have, in fact, to marry this woman? So that there will be an heir to carry on the family name, and so there will be someone to carry on title to the property, the ownership of the property. To redeem the property is not enough. It must, in fact, on the year of Jubilee, revert to someone, and Naomi's going to be gone, probably. Ruth cannot, so it must be her heir who will inherit the property. This man realizes suddenly this is more than he bargained for. There are two things, two responsibilities that he has, not one. It isn't just about the property, it's about Ruth as well. He can't do one without the other. He cannot accept one and ignore the other. Either he will do his duty as the kinsman redeemer or he will not. And there are two parts to it. So look at verse number six. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. What does he mean by this? What does he mean he can't do it? Well, if he only had to redeem the property, he would have to put out money for it, but he would see a return on his investment. In some sense, he might be poor for it for a while, but it's not a total loss. On the other hand, if he puts out money for the land, and then he marries Ruth, and they have a child, the land goes to the child. So he's put out the money 
and he's not going to see a return on his investment. If and when they had an heir or heirs, Malon's name would be continued and the land would belong to that heir. The man does not, is not willing to lose both the money and the land. His own estate would be weakened, would be impaired. I hesitate to use numbers, but if you could imagine, let's say $100,000 is what he has in the bank, and he's going to have to spend $50,000 for this piece of property that belonged to Elimelech. Well, if he marries Ruth and she has a child, that money's gone. And what he has left for his estate is half of what he had, and he's not willing He's not willing to take that risk. He doesn't want to lose the money and his and the land. So he puts it on Boaz. If you want to do it, you can. By the way, this is for me the heart of the matter in the book of Ruth. To be a redeemer is a very expensive and costly thing to do. Wisely, this man thought this through. If I put out money and I marry this woman, I'm going to lose the money and the land. I'm not willing to do that. To be a kinsman redeemer required great cost. And what we find is that Boaz is willing to pay the price. The other man is not. Just a side note, in in my studying for this series... One thing I find really disturbing, and I think it really diminished the story of the book of Ruth, is that people see the book of Ruth as a great romance. That that um, they imagine somehow that Boaz was an aging bachelor, probably married, never married in his life, and here comes along this young, hot widow from Moab, and he falls in love, and because of his great love for her, he's willing to do that. Well, first of all, we're not told that he's a bachelor. Polygamy was allowed in Israel. It's very possible that he had another wife or wives. Okay? We know that he's older than Ruth. Uh, we don't know how much older, but that he is older. We're not told that Ruth is an attractive woman. Um, I mean, somehow to imagine, to conjure up this romance, you know, this what is it, May-December type of romance where she's young and he's old and he, they both fall in love and, and so this wonderful thing happens. Um, I think in many ways it diminishes what's really going on. This is going to cost Boaz big time. To redeem the land, he's going to have to put out money for it. It's going to cost him. And in fact, the cost is so great that the guy in line ahead of him said, I'm not doing it. I can't do it. It's too, it, it's too much. Boaz is willing to do it. And again, there are commentators say, oh, because of his great love for Ruth, he was willing to do this. We're not told that. What he does, in fact, is sacrificial and not, helps not only Ruth, but Naomi as well. What we have in this story, what we are told about these two people, Boaz and Ruth, is that they are two people of good moral character. And they are willing to enter into the marriage for the sake of Naomi and her dead husband, Elimelech. Was there love? Was there romance? Was there affection? It's possible. We're not told. Was redeeming the land and marrying Ruth a costly proposition? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And in fact, you know, I don't know that it would have put Boaz in the poorhouse, but uh, this was going to cost him. So imagine, let's say for the sake of argument that it is a great romance, you know, that there, there's this love and affection. When she gets pregnant and has a child, that's not his child, according to Jewish law. That's the child of her dead husband. Um, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like a very attractive proposition to me. And yet, Boaz and Ruth enter into this marriage. He's willing to pay the cost. And in this, Boaz is a type of the Lord Jesus. Our redemption is the most costly thing. And Jesus was willing to pay the price. Well, beginning of verse 7, we have the public announcements. Look, if you would, at verses 7 through 10. Well, first of all, historical background. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Obviously, we don't do things that way anymore. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among the family from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. It's pretty straightforward. This is how things were done, and so that's what they did. And then you have the public announcement that he's buying the property and he's going to marry Ruth. The witnesses respond in verses 11 and 12. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Here the people pronounce a blessing on Boaz and on Ruth. And I don't know about you, but this is not the kind of blessing I would some, want someone to pronounce on me. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. Really? Do you remember the story of Rachel and Leah? Where Jacob worked for seven years to marry Rachel and then Laban, the father-in-law, put Leah in the bed instead? And we read the next morning, Jacob wakes up and there's Leah. I mean, sheer deception. And Rachel and Leah built up the house of Israel. Well, them and their their two handmaidens. You know, if I'm Ruth, I'm not sure that I want to be compared to Rachel and Leah. And then may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Again, really? Do you remember the story? Tamar deceived uh, Judah by dressing up like a prostitute. She got pregnant by her father-in-law. Yes, we want you to be just like Tamar, Perez. This really sounds quite strange. By the way, if you get a chance, read Genesis 38. It's interesting because Perez was one of twins. And not being an expert in childbirth, it sounds rather gruesome to me, but one of the twins stuck his 
arm out the birth canal. And so they tied a piece of scarlet thread because he withdrew it back. And then the other twin came out first because they knew that because he didn't have the scarlet thread. And then Zerah came out first. But Perez was who was the one who was born first. But again, the question is, is this an appropriate blessing? Is this what you would ask that God would do for someone? There is the matter of ancestry. Okay, They are the descendants of those people. But there's something else. And that is that God is in control. Even in the face of deception. Now, there's no deception going on here. But you do have someone from Moab, a foreigner. That doesn't matter. God is in control. When Laban deceived Jacob, God was in control. When Tamar deceived Judah, God was in control. And we should not lose sight that God, in fact, is in control. And here you have an older man who's marrying a younger woman. She's from Moab. He's from Ephrathah. Um, But God is in control. God has brought these things about. Now she will become the wife of Boaz. So look at verses 13, 14, actually to 17. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. By the way, there's, because of the language, there's an indication that perhaps she was not able to conceive with her first husband, Malin, because God did not allow her to conceive. Life is a gift from God and it is God who enabled her to conceive. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given birth. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. What a wonderful thing to hear. Naomi has a son, and this is the Lord's doing. She who lost a husband and two sons now has a grandson, but he is referred to as her son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then the last part of the book, it tells us the genealogy. Look at verse 18. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. Here in the book of Ruth, we've been studying the story of how a woman from a foreign country, from a political, and I would say a religious enemy of Israel, came to be a part of Israel. And what we should see from the book of Ruth is that in the midst of great darkness, as the book opens, and through all the, the twists and turns in the story, God is in control. And we should be reminded that God's ways are not our ways. We seem to have a certain way of doing things, and we think things should go in a particular way. This is not the way we would have planned this story. We would have preferred that Boaz marry a nice Jewish girl from Bethlehem and have his own family instead of marrying Ruth the Moabitess and having a son 
that will be in her husband's genealogical record and not his. But God's ways are not our ways. And we see this in the story of her great-grandson, David. Let me read to you, in closing, the story of how he was anointed. This is from 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So Samuel knows that one of Jesse's sons is going to be king. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived in Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Rather unusual thing. A prophet comes to town and everyone's scared. Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to sacrifice. Come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Eliab is the oldest, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen them. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent him and brought him in. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. If you look at the Mosaic law, it's the eldest who's supposed to get the blessing. It's the eldest who's supposed to be in charge, not the youngest. Jesse says, oh, he's the shepherd. He's taking care of the sheep. He's the youngest. In Jesse's mind, no doubt he loved his son, but this is not, this is not king material. This is not someone that should be anointed. God's ways are not our ways. I think it would do us good to remember that. We get so caught up with our own plans, our own schemes. Uh, We think we know how things are going to work out, and oftentimes they don't. But God's still in control. He absolutely is. I think Naomi always knew that. Even when she lost her husband and her sons in a foreign country, I think she still knew this God is in control. But she was obviously going through a valley, through a very dark time. But at the end of the story, people say, Naomi has a son. The moral of the story is not things will always work out, you just need to hang in there. Okay. Last month, or is it just a couple of weeks ago, 21 of our brothers were beheaded by ISIS in Libya. 
Obviously, things did not have a happy ending in this life for them. But they're now with the Lord. And one day, the Lord willing, we will all be with the Lord. This is not a permanent situation. But in this life, God is in control. We should not lose sight of that. In dark times, in bright times, when people are happy saying you have a son, when people are sad because of loss, God is still in control. And that, I think, is what we should take away from the book of Ruth. One more thing, and that is, to be a redeemer is very expensive. It's very costly. It costs a lot. And in this, Boaz is willing to pay the price, just as the Lord Jesus was, to redeem us. Let's pray together. Our Father, even as we finish our story, it's the story of Ruth going through this book, we are reminded that in our lives there is great joy as well as sorrow. For the birthdays that we've mentioned, for Jason and Gwen's anniversary, your faithfulness in our lives, what joy you have brought to us. Then we think of loss and we think of Mike Greenholtz, grandfather, passing away. And yet there is a certain joy because he was ready to be with you. As we go through our lives, sometimes things just do not make sense. Other times we don't care if they make sense or not. We're just happy. But may we learn from this story to trust you that you, in fact, are in control. It may not always seem that way, but you are. We pray for those that will be traveling this week, uh, for Gia coming back, for Mike going to Pennsylvania, and Robin coming out from New York, and others, for Titus as he drives. Watch over each one. Watch over us as we go through this week. May we have a sense of your presence. And now, as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.